It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 384, February 16th, 2014. This week, if you still need a replacement for the suddenly discontinued free version of Log Me In, I have a suggestion for you. When a hard drive dies, recovery should be quick and easy. Sometimes it is. And in short circuits, Microsoft renames SkyDrive, but the marketing department seems again to have made another bad choice. The deal by Comcast to acquire Time Warner seems destined for approval, and malware called Coretto sets its sights on high-value targets. Those of us who help friends and relatives take care of their computers sometimes need to see exactly what the person we're trying to help is seeing. This is easy enough if the person you're willing to help is next door, less so if the person is across town, even less so if the person is several states away. Blog Me In, an application designed for commercial help desks, has allowed individual users to download and install a version of their application without charge. That all ended a few weeks ago with absolutely no warning. One might question the ethics of giving users no warning about a change like this, but I suppose the owners of LogMeIn had some reason for acting in this manner. Because I occasionally need to connect to my home computer when I'm at the office, or connect to somebody else's computer to provide a helping hand, I started looking for a replacement. Initially, I looked at RealVNC, Mikogo, and IMPC Remote. I had previously used Mikogo, but it requires that a person actually be present at both computers. That's fine if I'm helping somebody else. Not acceptable, though, if I need to log on to my own computer when I'm not in front of the computer. There's some physical law against being in two places simultaneously. Real VNC has free and paid versions, but there have been security issues over the years. Known solutions exist for all of the security problems, but those concerns coupled with my review of the setup process told me to just keep looking. About that time, a listener reminded me of TeamViewer. That's free for personal use, even though it's a $700 application. I downloaded and installed TeamViewer and realized immediately that it is an excellent support tool. However, at the end of each session, it displays a nag screen, and the system seems to be quite suspicious if you use it frequently, as I did during the testing and setup. After uninstalling TeamViewer, I realized I had gone through this same futile exercise more than a year ago. So that left IMPC Remote. It's available in two options, Standard and Pro. Both have free and paid versions, but you need a paid version only if you use it a lot. No real definition for a lot. Or if you want the developer to customize the interface and add your logo. As you might expect, the free Pro version is more versatile than the free basic version. So that's the one I installed. Depending on how you want to use the application, you need to install either the remote manager or the tray application or both. Install the remote manager if you want to use the computer to connect to other computers and manage them. Install the tray application if you want to be able to connect to the computer. 
So I installed both on my home desktop and my primary notebook because I want to be able to connect to each of those computers or use either one of those computers to connect to other computers. At the office, I installed only the remote manager. And anyone who wants to allow me to connect to their computer would need only to install the tray application. Although the interface isn't nearly as pretty as that provided by LogMeIn, I found that it provides far better functionality, including the ability to copy files from one computer to another. That's something that LogMeIn provided only in its paid versions. The instant version is primarily designed for one-time connections. The remote user is instructed to download and run the IMPC Remote Instant User application. This process creates a nine-digit ID that the remote user shares with you by phone or email. The professional version takes longer to set up, but it allows for unattended connections as needed because it's a framework program that establishes a connection with those computers on which you or the person you need to help has installed the component that runs in the tray. The developers have used a static 512-bit RSA key and a separate 512-bit key that changes frequently to secure the connection. Additionally, all data transferred from one computer to another is encrypted with a 128-bit AES key. For better security and faster response times, the developers suggest installing what they call a repeater. The repeater is defined as a data flow server. It has to be downloaded and installed along with the other components. And if the server application you download and install becomes unavailable, connections will still be handled via the IMPC Remote Central server. The step, unlike setting up the basic application, will require that you modify firewall settings and that you have some knowledge of ports and IP addresses. Specifically, you need to enable port forwarding on ports 5500 and 5901. Additionally, if your PC doesn't have a static IP address, you'll need to install a dynamic name manager program, such as Dynamic DNS. This will maintain connections so that your computer will appear on the public internet. Next, you'd need to set up the IMPC remote application to use your server instead of the public server. The steps are all relatively straightforward and well-documented, but most users will probably choose to just use IMPC Remote's default settings. IMPC Remote is essentially transparent to your network router or the router used by the person whose computer you need to connect to. No router or firewall configurations need to be modified. Connecting to another computer is simple enough. Just start the application, select the computer you want from the list, confirm that you really want to connect to it. You'll see some screenshots of a connection session on the TechBiter Worldwide website. By default, IMPC Remote will attempt to provide the fastest possible response, even if that means the display will be degraded. So in most cases, the remote computer will be reduced from 16.7 million colors on the screen to just 256. This allows the remote screen to be redrawn a lot faster. If you must see full-color images on the remote computer, you can modify the setting with the understanding that the screen refresh time will be a lot slower. Refresh times are affected by the speed of your internet connection too, and that of the remote computer. One feature that's unexpected in an application that's provided without charge is the ability to transfer files from one computer to another. This is a feature that was missing from the LogMeIn free version. 
The workaround involved sending files from one computer to an FTP site and then retrieving them using the other computer. But it's a lot more convenient just to be able to drag files from one computer to the other. And although long-distance telephone fees, if you pay long-distance telephone fees, are considerably lower than they used to be, if you're connecting to a computer that's hundreds of miles away or even halfway around the world, you can communicate with the user via a chat window. You can install the Tray service on any Windows computer with Windows 2000 and later. So that's 2000 XP Server 2003, Vista Server 2008, Server 2012, Windows 7, or Windows 8. The Remote Manager is available for the same versions of Windows, but it's also available for Apple's Mac OS X Leopard and Snow Leopard. Although IMPC Remote will work even with a modem-based connection, developers say they strongly encourage a high-speed connection. Although registered in the United States, IMPC Remote is actually located in Hungary, where it provides contract support to its clients. The company's website explains that it found programs such as LogMeIn and TeamViewer to be too expensive for their needs. That led them to develop their own alternative. Support organizations that use IMPC Remote may want to brand it with their own logo, and you can do that by paying an annual licensing fee. The bottom line for IMPC Remote, for cats, it allows you to help friends and relatives with PC problems, and if you own a computer support business, you can use it for free maybe. Read the small print. Although it doesn't have the features of BombGar or the refined interface of TeamViewer, IMPC Remote is free for individuals to use and even free for some business use. For a free application, it includes surprising features such as the ability to start a chat session and the option to transfer files between computers. You'll find additional details on the IMPC Remote website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Conventional wisdom says that hard drive failure is not a question of if, but when. I was reminded of the truth of that bit of conventional wisdom recently when a hard drive failed. Drives F and I existed as two logical drives on a single physical drive. The first drive, F, became unresponsive, but drive I was still available. Drive F is primarily used to house music files, and it was fully backed up. Drive I is essentially a scratch disk used for temporary files that don't need to be backed up, so no backup existed for that drive. When a drive fails, it usually just fails. The failure typically affects any logical drive on the physical device. But in this case, logical drive F had failed, although it occasionally became visible, while files on logical drive I remained accessible. Knowing that I would have to replace the physical drive and that everything on F had been backed up, I looked to see what was on drive I. Although losing all of those files on the scratch disk wouldn't have been a problem, I decided to see if I could save some of them to avoid having to repeat work that created the temporary files. Saving involved copying the files to other logical drives that were located on separate physical drives. That process completed without a problem. But this is something that you should not count on as a given when a disk drive fails. It's unusual for any logical drive on a failed physical drive to still be accessible. 
but now I had several hundred gigabytes of data from Drive I temporarily stored on other drives, while several hundred gigabytes of data from Drive F were available only on backup. The next day, I purchased a replacement drive and installed it. Then I restored the data from my local hot backup drives and to make sure the most recently added files had also been restored from my Carbonite backup. Additional research suggested that Seagate disk drives maybe aren't as well regarded as Seagate disk drives were once regarded. So I elected to replace two 2TB Seagate disk drives with two 3TB Hitachi disk drives. Because I knew that I would need to transfer data from the surviving Seagate drive, I also purchased a Nextar SATA 6GB to USB 3.0 adapter. That allowed me to install the new drives in the computer and then use the USB device to connect the old drives and copy data from them. That turned out to be one of the best $30 purchases I've ever made, even though the price dropped by $7 shortly after I made the purchase. I was able to use this device to copy all of the data from the suddenly retired Seagate drive to the newly installed Hitachi drives. When I tried to connect the partially failed drive, though, I found that it had failed entirely. It was no longer recognized by the operating system, and even the Nexstar SATA adapter was unable to see it. Fortunately, nothing important was on either of the two logical drives that were housed on that physical drive. On the other hand, copying all the files from the two logical drives that were located on the Seagate drive that was still functioning was a snap because of the Nexstar SATA adapter. Initially, when I was able to copy files from Drive F, the copy process was slow, and the drive occasionally disappeared. By slow, I mean that a 10-kilobyte file, which should transfer in a fraction of a second, could sometimes take as long as three minutes. Clearly, that disk drive was trying hard. Drive I didn't disappear, and it wasn't quite as slow as Drive F, but the process still wasn't speedy. Fortunately, all of the files that made the trip to the new drive were complete and fully functional, even though this was more of an academic exercise because the files were fully backed up. Most disk drives give us little or no warning when they're going to fail. And when a single physical drive houses multiple logical drives, usually they all fail simultaneously. This was an unusual situation, but it illustrates the danger of not having backup. I would have sorely missed the hundreds of megabytes of backed-up files that were on drives F and I, but because a sufficient backup was readily available, the incident was little more than a minor annoyance. In short circuits, I keep wondering why Microsoft can't brand. Remember Metro? That's what the Windows 8 touch interface was called until Germany's Metro stores objected. Now it's either the interface that shall not be named, or modern, or as I call it, Metro. It's hard to kill a name that was in use during the entire development process. So even though it's not legally Metro anymore, in my mind it still is. Well, now Microsoft is withdrawing its online storage service, or at least renaming it. Sky Broadcasting in England objected to Microsoft's use of SkyDrive. I suppose it was easy for Microsoft's marketing division to miss that. After all, SkyDrive is only the largest pay television service in England. 
The new name is OneDrive. This suggests that Microsoft marketing still doesn't quite understand this infringement issue. Let's look at Metro first. Metro AG owns stores in Germany and doesn't have anything to do with software. Even so, Metro AG made a viable case against Microsoft for trademark infringement when Microsoft named its new interface Metro. Now let's consider SkyDrive. As a pay television provider, England's Sky service doesn't offer any competitive online storage facilities. The closest Sky broadcasting comes to online storage involves its public Wi-Fi hotspots. That's a business Sky Broadcasting acquired in 2011. Okay, so let's move on to OneDrive. Could it be that Microsoft Marketing is unaware of the web hosting company One.com? As a hosting company, One.com isn't really in the business of providing online data storage, but its offerings are a lot more similar to Microsoft's than were those of Sky Broadcasting. And what about Ubuntu One? That is an online data storage service. It's being offered by one of the largest providers of Linux distributions. Might Ubuntu or One.com object to Microsoft's use of OneDrive? Ubuntu would seem to have a clear case to object because it does provide services for users of Windows and Apple computers as well as Android devices. Microsoft seems to have an ongoing problem with names for its services. Remember Microsoft Wallet, which became Microsoft Passport and then morphed to .NET Passport and next to Windows Live ID? Well, it's now referred to as your Microsoft account. Maybe Microsoft should consider a different name for its online data service. So I'd like to recommend the Metro One Online Data Store. But not seriously. Corporation wants to buy Time Warner Cable and is willing to pay more than $45 billion to do it. This isn't a deal that's going to close in a few weeks, but it probably will close in a year or so after federal antitrust regulators review the plans. It's worth noting that Comcast and Time Warner do not compete with each other in any market, and that's something that might allow this deal to slip through approval by the Department of Justice. Competition is nearly non-existent in the cable market anyway. The cable companies have cut deals with local and state governments that give them what are essentially monopolies in most markets. The all-stock deal would allow Comcast to operate in 19 of the 20 largest U.S. TV markets. That includes New York City and Los Angeles. The new company would have almost 30% of the pay TV market and a strong presence among providers of broadband Internet services. Former FCC Chairman Reed Hunt described the deal this way, I don't know if the deal's too big to fail to be approved, but it's definitely too big to sail through either the Department of Justice or the FCC without serious, serious examination. Now, I'm fortunate that I can select from Time Warner, Wide Open West, and AT&T. So now my choices will be Comcast, Wide Open West, and AT&T. What are your choices right now?
The deal shouldn't have any effect on your choices, other than perhaps changing Time Warner to Comcast, if Time Warner is one of your choices now. Both Comcast and Time Warner have poor reputations in terms of providing customer service, and I wonder how many people have said over the years, eh, Time Warner's support is bad, but at least I don't have to deal with Comcast. The reputations of the two largest internet service providers were key points in some of the responses to the proposal on Twitter. I read some of the comments on Twitter regarding the acquisition, and I think the best one came from Jason Carr. Comcast is buying Time Warner. Isn't that like moving toward a monopoly? Transmission deleted. Wait, I wasn't finished. We are in control. And some runners-up, starting with Samir Mazrahi. If you need service in 2019 for the new Comcast Time Warner, you should probably call now and get in the hold queue. And Phil Rosenthal. Forget DOJ. Best bet to thwart Comcast Time Warner cable deal is each company gets stuck on hold waiting for the other. Pour Me Coffee said, Wow, a Comcast Time Warner merger would create a combined customer service department of well over 10 employees. Dave Pell tweeted, Everyone who is worried about Comcast Time Warner cable merger can relax. I'm still getting a solid 28.8K on my modem. And Chris Cluey, I'm sure the recent removal of net neutrality and the acquisition of Time Warner cable by Comcast is super healthy for the internet. As for Comcast, the company says the acquisition will benefit customers because Time Warner cables would gain Comcast set-top boxes. How exactly this would benefit consumers, the company didn't elaborate. But it did say that higher broadband speeds would also be part of the deal. A little more than a year ago, Comcast paid $17 billion to acquire NBC Universal. Coretto, something you definitely don't care to encounter. You don't want it to show up on your computer. It's one of the more sophisticated threats being found in the wild, and it's not limited to Windows-based computers. Kaspersky Labs says you'll find it on Macs and Linux computers, too, and possibly on handheld devices that run iOS or Android operating systems. The malware starts as a phishing message that appears to be from any of several popular news sites, most news sites encourage users to sign up for notifications, so the arrival of a message that appears to be from such a site raises no warnings. Click on the link in the message, though, and your browser will be taken to a website that scans for vulnerabilities and then attempts to inject an infection. Caretto means mask, and apparently by implication, ugly mask. The antivirus manufacturer says when active in a victim system, Coretto can intercept network traffic, keystrokes, Skype conversations, and PGP keys. It can analyze Wi-Fi traffic, capture screen images, and monitor all file operations. The targets for this malware are high-value targets such as government agencies, embassies, energy industries, research institutions, private equity firms, and activists. The malware collects a large list of documents from the infected system, including encryption keys, VPN configurations, SSH keys, and RDP files. Kaspersky Labs says it's also monitoring several extensions that they've not been able to identify. These could be related, they say, to military or government encryption tools. 
This isn't a new threat, by the way, but it has become increasingly sophisticated the time it was first noticed, back in 2007. If you'd like to read Kaspersky's extensive and detailed report on the threat, you'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.